Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. We'll be picking our study back up this morning in Acts chapter 11 at the very end in verse 27. We'll do some quick review there as we make our way into Acts chapter 12. And we read in Acts eleven twenty-seven: In these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is the end of the chapter where we see many different things happen. And and here at the end, Barnabas and Saul, they're working there in, in Antioch. And we read last week of the account where the Gentiles received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Not only that, but we saw the Holy Spirit fall upon them. What we saw was that God was continuing to move in this early church. And we discussed three key things that were evident with this growing, expanding, and changing church. The first of which was that Jewish believers received the Gentiles and accepted them. We saw that they began to let go of tradition that they were embracing a move of the Holy Spirit that was bringing new people, new people from different backgrounds to faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, as they accepted these Gentile believers, these believers with different backgrounds, they invested in them. They encouraged them. We saw in the church a focus on raising up new leaders, encouraging one another in the faith, walking alongside one another as they grew in the Lord. What we saw was early examples of discipleship. And finally, third, we saw how the Gentile believers were led to care and provide for their Jewish believing brethren as they sent them resources in anticipation of the famine that would be in the land. And we see there a model for giving within the church that we would take care of one another. And we have this opportunity right now with those uh, affected by the hurricane in Texas, my Hurricane Harvey, those impacted, in particular, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. They're in need of our help. They're in need of our prayers. They're in need of our tangible, practical, material support. You know, there's a link in our e-bulletin that went out this last week. Some of you may have clicked on that. It would take you to the Calvary Chapel Association website, give you updates on what's going on there, ways in which we can help. And it's not my intent this morning to give a commercial. I'm not going to advertise for anything. I'm not going to suggest that you sign up for a, a monthly giving program or anything like that. But it's interesting that we see here within the Word an example of believers taking care of one another, even those that aren't in their area, and we have that opportunity right now. And it says that as each one was able. right? And so that's what the Lord asks of us as we consider our brothers and sisters. You know, and I would encourage each of you this morning, and my message isn't going to be on that which is going on in Texas, but we know there's a Calvary Chapel there in Houston. You can read the updates online, and I will continue to post that information. But they have need. They have real physical need right now. And so I would ask you to consider that and pray about how you can meet that need, whether it's giving a donation or or maybe there's some of you here. Truly, I feel like we need to go. I would love to be able to say this week, we're going to send people there to help. And right now, the Lord hasn't given me a vision for how to make that happen. Maybe there's some of you here that have been feeling that same way and you've got the ability, you've got the time, you could pull that off and you can help to bring a group together. 
I wanted to mention that at the beginning of our message today, just because we need to be thinking about that as we pray today, as we go into this message, as we consider the importance of the church committing itself to prayer, we also need to consider how we can mobilize, how we can act to help our brothers and sisters. The last thing that we would want, God forbid that at the end of this, through the recovery effort, that it's Hollywood and the Red Cross that's standing tall with the church nowhere to be seen. We've got to be out there. We've got to be involved. We've got to be doing what we can. And yes, praying is a key component of that. We have to be praying for those believers, especially in Texas, but the unbelievers as well, that they would receive support and ministry from believers, that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be shared to give them the ultimate and eternal perspective as they're going through these trials. And so we need to be serving them. We need to be helping in all the ways that we can. Because that was the characteristic of the church in these early times. As we read last week, they were referred to as Christians, and it was a bit of a derogatory term at first. It was something that someone came up with to say, these are those followers of Jesus Christ, we'll call them Christians. But the beautiful thing about that, though, what they were being called wasn't necessarily a compliment. They were known. They were known by how they lived their lives. They were known by the fact that they followed Jesus Christ. These were the characteristics of these early believers They were identified as Christians for how they lived, by their way of life. And so the world will be looking at how the church responds in this situation, how the church responds in our country, not just to the issues and the things going on in Texas. We've got another storm that's coming, how we may respond to that. But every crisis that's going on within our country today, the world is looking for how the church is going to respond, how we're stepping up. And as we move into chapter 12, we'll continue to read some elements of what the church was all about. We're going to see the early church and how they committed themselves to prayer and support of their brethren. And we need to take whatever the Lord has for us from that, whatever exhortation, whatever conviction we may feel about how our prayer life is and and how we're supporting our brothers and sisters, we need to be ready to receive that here today. Because in our study of Acts, what I believe the Lord is doing is reminding us and teaching us and helping us to see to the extent that we can within His Word what He desires of His church today. And so with that, as we transition into chapter 12, if you would just agree with me again in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we go to Your Word here this morning, Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to to receive what You have for us today. Lord, we'll see within this chapter an emphasis on prayer on how the church supported one another through committed time and prayer, and how that then translated to the move of your Spirit, to them practically supporting one another. Lord, we ask here this morning that you'd teach us, that you'd show us, that you'd reveal to us, Lord, what you have for us today. And I would pray that at the very beginning here, that we would pursue the, the, the proper heart a humble heart before you, as we'll continue in a time of prayer, even through here at the end of our service, as we'll join with other brothers and sisters across this country today in committing ourselves to prayer, to lifting up our nation, to lifting up our leaders, to lifting up those who are hurting today, who are suffering today. And that that would then prepare us for our time of communion, Lord, that we could go before you in that way and and be ready to receive of the elements of communion here today as we remember the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, and that it's through that and that alone that we're able to to be here today, that we're able to pray, that we're able to commit ourselves to coming before you in such a way. Lord, I would pray that you'd just move in a mighty way here this morning. May your presence be felt here, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so again, as we move into chapter 12, 
we read here what is really the final account of Peter in the book of Acts. We'll see where he's mentioned one more time briefly in Acts, but essentially we start to transition here to a focus on the Apostle Paul and his ministry through the end of Acts. And so this is really the last that we'll see Peter here. Of course, we know that he has his other letters in and, and First and Second Peter, and we'll, uh, we'll get to those later on. But here we have an account of Peter, of Peter and his imprisonment and his miraculous escape. In the 1979 movie, Escape from Alcatraz, see some heads nodding, we see Frank Morris, played by none other than Clint Eastwood. And we see Frank Morris do what no one had ever done before. With nothing more than spoons as shovels, they achieved, he and his inmate friends, they defied the impossible and they escaped from the infamous prison, Alcatraz. Acts 12 contains nothing like that. <laughs> no well-thought-out escape plan. No unlikely prisoner alliances. No repurposed tableware from the cafeteria. The miracle that we see in Acts chapter 12 is a weapon often unused today by the church. It's a weapon that is often, sadly for the believer, a last resort during difficult times in life. The miracle was the power of a praying church. And we must see that here this morning. As we read in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, when you read this, you probably, if you haven't studied much within the book of Acts, you're seeing Herod again, and you're thinking, what is with this Herod? He's all over the place. We're always hearing about Herod, all these bad things that he does. Well, the Herods, there were several of them. This Herod is Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great, who ruled during the time of Jesus' birth, who ordered the murder of children in Bethlehem. He's also the nephew of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded. He was yet another in the line of Herods who were hated by the Jews and fueled by pride. He was a true politician in the most negative sense of the term. Herod was motivated by popularity. Right or wrong, he would do what he felt would please the people instead of sticking to some moral compass. It would be his aim and eventually his demise to please the people so much that, as we'll see here at the end of the chapter, as they began to declare him a god, he wouldn't refuse such a compliment, and the Lord would strike him down. And here, to please the Jews in the land, he carried out persecution against Christians in the church, and specifically now the apostles. So this is a shift for us now as we start to see persecution really come against the apostles, and specifically here James as the first of the martyred apostles. And we read in verse 2, Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Herod was responding to what he felt the Jews would want him to do. The church was growing. Now the Gentiles were being brought into the faith, and even more now, he saw it fit to silence the church and specifically to kill off the apostles. And here we read in verse 2 that James, the brother of John, was killed with the sword. James was beheaded, is what this indicates. And this would be the first of the apostles that were killed for their faith. Not the first martyr, but the first of the apostles. And so this was going to really hit home. 
This was going to begin to have a serious impact on the church, depending on how they responded and how they looked at it. Now, do you remember the account of James and John in the Gospel of Mark? Chapter 10, verses 35 through 40, tell us about this. In verse 35, we read, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. In verse 36, And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And in verse 39, they said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. James and John, sons of thunder, as they were known as, they did not know what they were asking. They didn't know exactly what they were seeking, other than they saw it fitting with their mother involved to say, hey, can we have a position of prominence with you? They didn't know what they were asking. They didn't know what they were seeking. But they would find out. They would learn. They would eventually learn who Jesus really was, what he came to accomplish, and that by their participation with him in that ministry, their commitment to him, their surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that it would require all. And so here James is beheaded, killed by sword, not the first martyr in the other church. We read earlier of Stephen in the beginning of Acts. Stephen was the first martyr. And no doubt there were many from that time because persecution had been inflicted upon the church. But this was the first apostle. Up until this point, the apostles had experienced a great run. Divine protection was upon them. And here, one of them is killed. John, his brother, as we know, would eventually be exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Revelation. That's John, James's brother. John, too, would remember that time when they asked Jesus for this position of authority and how Jesus told them, you will suffer. John was the only one that wasn't martyred, but it wasn't because no one tried. Multiple attempts were made at John's life. But in God's sovereignty, he protected him, kept him until the very end so that he could receive the revelation of Jesus Christ and share it ultimately with us as well. Peter, Peter here, sitting in a jail cell, knew that he would likely face the same fate. Though Jesus had promised Peter that he would live to be much older, so he likely, as he sat in prison here in this moment, thought this probably isn't the time quite yet, but he didn't know for sure. He could have easily thought that his fate would be the same as James. Peter eventually crucified, but crucified upside down, for he couldn't bear the thought of, of having the same death as Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior. So he asked that he be turned upside down on the cross. You see, these men were sold out. They understood what it meant at this point to follow Jesus Christ, to give everything for him. And now James is dead. Peter is in prison for the third time. Sixteen guards in total are set to watch over Peter because this pesky apostle keeps escaping. They weren't going to let it happen again. They were going to set guards over him. They weren't going to chain him to one guard this time. They were going to chain him to two between two big guards. This could have been the ultimate low point. The first of the apostles martyred, Peter facing the same fate. Perhaps he thought this was the beginning of the end. But God knew 
And this is the first of our lessons from chapter 12 this morning, is that God knows the trials that we are facing. It's the first thing that I want you to hear is that in this moment, it could have been a low point. It could have been incredibly difficult for them. No doubt they knew that James would be in the presence of the Lord, but it was still sad. It was still sad for them to have lost him, for them to think about their times in ministry together. But they understood that God knew. God knew what they were facing. And in that same way, God understands this morning what you're facing. He understands the trials that you're going through. It is not a surprise to God. God was not surprised here at what happened. God's never anxious over what's to come. As dark as the circumstances in life may seem at times, Christian, God knows. And we can put our faith, our trust, and our hope in that, that he understands. And so in verse 5, we see that Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And so we very quickly here see lesson number two, that there is great power in a praying church. This is the game changer. Such a simple verse, yet so profound, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. This is the point when the tides begin to change. This is the moment in every storyline when the glimmer of hope begins to shine. This is the promise for the church today that when facing the darkest of times, we pray. You see, as a nation, we are facing very difficult times. We recognize that there is a reason why today, and not in similar fashion to years before, that today was declared a national day of prayer because people in our nation are recognizing that we need to pray. We need to pray. God's people here were praying And folks, I want you to understand something, that the weakest of saints on their knees are a threat to the enemy. It doesn't matter how weak our faith is that when we fall to our knees, when God brings us to that place, when we know there is nothing left in us that we can pursue, when we know that there's no other option, and sadly we have to get to that point, but sometimes that happens, that when we get to that point and we fall on our knees and we surrender and we say, God, help us, that he can begin to work. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Matthew 21, 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Mark eleven twenty four. therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. James 5, 14 through 16, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, you will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. You see, throughout the Word, I mean, we could go on and on and on and on and see the areas and the ways in which the Word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us to pray. Evangelist early 1900s, R.A. Torrey said this of prayer, quote, when the devil sees a man or woman who really believes in prayer, who knows how to pray, and who really does pray, and above all, when he sees a whole church on its face before God in prayer, he trembles as much as he ever did, for he knows that his day in that church or community is at an end. Jesus said of Peter, that it was on him, it was on that rock whom he would build his church, that he gave 
Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And that's why we see Peter so involved and instrumental that God uses Peter in the advancement of the church, first to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles. Peter's involved in, in each of those because of the emphasis that Jesus placed on the fact that the church would be established through Peter's leadership. What he goes on to say is that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sadly today, far too often within the church, we sit back, we hide, and we hope and we pray and we think, okay, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Instead of us taking things right to the gates of hell and driving the enemy back and saying, we're going to be on our face. We're going to be on our knees in prayer. And we're going to pray that the enemy would not overtake us. You see, we got to have more of an offensive posture at times. The church doesn't need to be hiding within the walls of the church during these difficult times. We need to be going out. And so the problem becomes then, as we hear about this, as we look at the Word and we see that the Word tells us to pray and to be confident, that we need to ask ourselves, do we believe it? Do we believe that prayer works? Does our belief in prayer translate to action? Because it did for Peter. We see that in the account here. In verse 6, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping. He was sleeping. What does that tell you about how Peter was feeling in this particular moment? He was bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Sixteen guards in total, four on each watch, cycling through, chained to two soldiers. And he's asleep. Peter absolutely believed in the power of prayer. And it was through that that he found peace. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 say, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's break that down here. Be anxious for nothing. Folks, if you're anxious today, if you're feeling anxiety, you can at least know this. And it may not make the anxiety go away right away, but the anxiety is not from the Lord. We are told here it is a command. Be anxious for nothing. You've heard me talk about this before. The idea of worry is silly. We worry. We worry on a regular basis. And do you know what we worry about? Something that hasn't happened. Something that may not happen. The idea of worry is almost like insanity. It doesn't make any sense. And we can worry, and we can worry and worry and worry about all the things that aren't going to happen, and, and we can lose our mind over it. We're told, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, what is everything translated? Everything, very good. In everything, by prayer and supplication. Not just prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving. Wait a second. Do you mean that even in these difficult circumstances that we can go before the Lord and in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that we can be thankful still, that we can cry out to God and say, Lord, thank you. Yes, we can. How did Jesus teach us how to pray? He said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He started the prayer with praise. It wasn't that Jesus said, pray this prayer every time. What he was giving us was a model for prayer. And he said, when you go to the Lord, when you pray, you praise him. You give him thanks. You recognize how great and how awesome he is. And so, yes, in the midst of everything that we're going through today in this country, in the midst of all the suffering, in the midst of all the division, in the midst of everything that's going on, not only can we, but we should, we must 
We should be excited about the fact that we can go before the creator of the universe and we can say, praise God that we can come before you. Thank you, God, for who you are and for what you've done in my life. Thank you, God, for your provision and for moving and for shaping me and transforming me and saving me. That we can recognize here that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross, that that veil was torn, that we can go into the Holy of Holies, that we can go before the creator of the universe. But we lose sight of that because we can't see it, because we can't feel it. It's not as real to us as this right here. And in our limited perspective, we begin to forget about how powerful that is. That in times past, a priest would, on their garments, there would be little bells on their garments, and there would be a rope around their leg, for as they went into the Holy of Holies, if they screwed anything up, that they dropped dead in there. But that's how powerful that was. And nobody else could go in, and so they'd pull them out. And that process is now done. And guess what? We get to do it. We get to go before Him. In everything. So yes, we can go before him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, thanking him for who he is and what he has done, what he is doing and what he's going to do. And let your requests be made known to God. And then, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see, we know people are desiring peace. Everybody wants peace. We all so desperately want peace. And it's not just about world peace and no more conflict. We want internal peace. We all are seeking peace. How many of you each and every day, you think to yourself, I just want peace, especially if you're going through conflict. But see here, we have the recipe for that. If you're here today and you're desiring peace, well, you have the recipe for it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Seek Him. Pray. Pursue Him. And the peace of God then that you desire, the peace of God that is beyond anything else, that surpasses all understanding, but that means there is, it can't be fully known. We can't fully grasp it. It's not that it just doesn't make sense. It's not that it's foolishness, although in some respects, people will look at it in that way. When they see that you're at peace in the midst of these trials, they'll think, boy, you're crazy. How can you be so calm? How can you be at peace? Peter, how can you be sleeping chained to these two guards? Because he has peace. He has peace which surpasses all understanding. He has peace from God. His heart is guarded. His mind is protected through Jesus Christ. Peter knows this peace. His heart and mind guarded through Jesus Christ, and he's sleeping. And here now, and I'll move through this somewhat quickly as we hear the account of how he's let out of prison. In verse 7, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, quickly. I mean, he was so at peace, he was so asleep, that here an angel shows up, and he's got to wake him up. And he says, Arise, quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. And then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did, and he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. As Peter began to wake up, 
as he became more alert, he recognized and realized the extent of what had just happened. What he had thought at first was a dream, a vision, which you can't blame Peter. He had had many dreams and visions. It was just in the last account in chapter 11 that he had the vision of the sheep coming down from heaven and the four-footed animals. And so he's used to seeing God in this way. He's used to God speaking to him in this way. And here he's being let out. And at first he thinks it's a vision, but all of a sudden he sort of wakes up and he's out in the alley and he's thinking, holy smokes, I'm out of prison again. This is amazing. And so he says, now I know that an angel has in fact delivered me from the expectation of the Jewish people as well. He knew they wanted him dead. And so it is as we seek the Lord in prayer that we rest in his peace. And he answers our prayers and we learn to depend on him even more. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah there speaking to the nation of Israel, a promise that we can lay claim to here today, that as we seek God, we seek him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. His, his peace begins to enter into our lives. Our hearts, our minds are guarded through Jesus Christ. We can begin to rest in him as we begin to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. We lay our burdens at his feet. He begins to work. And from there, he begins to strengthen our faith as he answers those prayers, as he moves, as we can start to see that, God, you're taking care of it. And I pray and I hope that each of you have these accounts in your own life, that you can think of times in which you were at the end of yourself and you began to hand it over to the Lord. And as you did that, you began to feel free. You began to feel at peace because you knew, I can just trust God with this. He desires to take care of this. And then as he works, as he meets those needs, as he answers your prayer, your faith is strengthened all the more as you recognize God's got it. And then you start to become one of those individuals that others can look to and say, wow, they've got such an amazing faith that you become an example to other believers and that God's going to take care of it. It's okay. You see how that works? And it starts to grow throughout the body of believers. And so some of you are those individuals today. Some of you are those who are strengthening others' faith. And some of you are those who are still on that process, that journey of trusting the Lord. And in verse 12, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Peter knew where to go. He knew there was a prayer meeting going on. We don't know exactly what transpired here, that he knew that this is where they would be. Maybe this was just the place that he knew to go. They were his friends in the area. And just because they were all so committed to prayer that they were praying too, I think that was probably the case. It says that the church as a whole was praying. I think multiple people were praying. I think there would be other households and other areas that were praying. But here he goes to this one, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. You see, this is awesome. This gives us a little bit of humor in this situation. And it's fun to just imagine Peter standing there at the gate. He's just been miraculously removed from prison by an angel. And here he's going to this house. He knows they're all in there praying and he's knocking at the door. And Rhoda here is likely a servant girl in the house. And she comes and she says, who is it? It's Peter. Oh, praise God. And she runs away. And Peter's got to be thinking, open the gate. Because he also understands too that the longer he stays out there, the more likely it is that they're going to come for him. He's not worried about that, I hope. But 
He's probably thinking, hey, let me in, let me in. It's funny. The angel can break him out of prison, but he can't get into the house. And so here she runs, and she runs to announce to everybody that it's Peter who stands before the gate. But they said to her in verse 15, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. Oh, you see, Peter believed in what God was doing. Peter believed in the power of prayer. And though they were in the house praying, did they too believe? You see, even when we commit ourselves to prayer, we can do so with little faith. We're called to pray with expectation. And this isn't name it and claim it stuff, okay? So don't take that and run with it and say, oh, I want that, Lord, and I'm praying about it, and it's mine. No, that's not how it works. This is praying through the promises of the Word of God. This is looking to the Word and saying, God, you have said that you are going to do this, and I'm going to trust that you will do it. That what God means when he says it, he does it. Matthew 8, 23, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? We are often guilty of possessing little faith. We go to the Lord in prayer out of obligation, believing it a necessary step in the process, rather than treating it as the secret weapon that it is. God's people need to turn to prayer as the first step in any situation. To quote Ari Tori again, the reason why many fail in battle is because they wait until the hour of battle. The reason why others succeed is because they have gained their victory on their knees long before the battle came. Anticipate your battles. Fight them on your knees before temptation comes and you will always have victory. You see, here they were praying specifically for Peter. And here Peter shows up at the door and they think, oh, can't be. How often do we in our prayers that, that God begins to move and God begins to answer those prayers and we think, oh, if only God would just answer this prayer. And he's saying, I have. I'm answering it. It's right here. You know, we're not paying attention or in a lack of faith. We're not, whatever the case may be, we miss it. And think about Peter. Here they are on the boat back in the beginning of Matthew and Jesus is sleeping and they're thinking, well, we're going to die. And Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. And now here, fast forward to Peter sitting in prison and he's asleep. You see, Peter understood. He learned. He got the lesson. His faith was strengthened. In time, he grew and he understood and he began to recognize how God would provide for him, how he would meet his needs, how he would take care of it. He trusted in that. And we need to do the same. In verse 16, now Peter continued knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. You see, to be amazed by what God has done is natural, and we should never lose that wonder, to be excited about what it is that God is doing. But we should never be surprised. When God moves and we essentially say, I can't believe it, or how can it be, is in itself a lack of faith. When we see God move, we should say, I totally believe it. God is good. And we prayed with expectation. We knew God would move. And as soon as it was day, verse 18, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. 
No small stir was an understatement. There were four soldiers who would be killed over the escape of Peter. And now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Yeah, thanks for that, Luke. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote this. He put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful. Came into the theater early in the morning at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner. And it was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. When he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. Here's lesson number three. God fights our battles. Herod, who set out to persecute the church and to kill off the apostles, fell victim to his own pride. In an act of defiance to God, he was struck and died. And what we must understand is that God's justice may not always be so swift. But rest assured, God will move. So often we can become burdened by our own desire for justice that we become so consumed with anxiety and worry over what is to come, we fail to see how God is working. We fail to praise Him for the work that He's doing as we become fixed on the work that's yet to be done. Even when things may not seem to be going your way, we can trust that God knows. We can trust that God hears our prayers and we can trust that God will fight our battles that no earthly system can prevent what God desires to do. As we read in verse 24, we'll begin to close. But the word of God grew and multiplied. You see, the chapter could be summarized in these two verses. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church, and the word of God grew and multiplied. At the very beginning, we could have easily seen it, and some of us do. Some of us, it is our mindset, it is our heart to be in those situations and to think, it's all over. Sadly, it's in our nature to look at that and be so discouraged, so depressed, that we fail to stop, to pause, and remind ourselves, God knows, God hears your prayer, and He's fighting your battle. And we need to recognize that today. We need to recognize that in our own lives, individually. We need to recognize that within this congregation of believers, within our community, and within our nation. There is no shortage of news and imagery out there to make us all worry and fear. A storm has decimated part of our country. For some, the best outcome was just that they were alive. And for others, sadly, they lost their lives. In the midst of all that, there continues to be incredible division permeating our country over a multitude of different issues. And in the eyes of the world, we have every reason this morning to worry, to be afraid, to be anxious, to question. But the Word of God tells us to do the exact opposite. 
And that's my challenge to each and every one of you this morning, myself included. If we are going to be the church, if people are going to know us as Christians, if they're going to look at your life and say, that is a follower of Jesus Christ, well, then you have certain responsibilities. And it's not a burden that I'm trying to put on your shoulders because the reality is, is God says, I'll bear that burden for you. All you need to do is surrender to me. All you need to do is give it to me. He says, cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. I'll take it, he says. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.